legalizefreedom.com. Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Nathaniel Bonnell who joins us to discuss techno-industrial society and potential trajectories for its future. As the world faces the oncoming reality of declining energy, fraying infrastructure and other consequences promised to us by the profligacy of the fossil fuel age, we're left to look into a future that at first appears a trackless wilderness. The monolith of globalized industrial civilization offers few frameworks to comprehend life in an age of less. It has dealt with its impending implosion with procrastination and denial. And yet, if we're to survive and even thrive in the future, we must have stories. For narrative is how we make sense of our world. But popular fantasies of Star Trek-type utopia or Mad Max-style Armageddon bear very little resemblance to the futures we're actually likely to get. Neither paradise nor apocalypse, and certainly not an easy continuation of the business as usual of the last few decades. Instead, we and our descendants will do what people always do figure out creative ways to keep doing all those things that make up life, the loving and hating and laughing and crying and all the rest in the times we've been given. Hello and welcome Nathaniel and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well thank you for having me. Nathaniel, today we're going to be talking about um, a number of things, your your life, your work, uh, specifically with New Maps, which is a, a periodical concerned with deindustrial fiction. We can set out all of the, you know the terms of people are not sure what all of that is. Do that shortly. The overarching topic is really at the in this early part of the twenty first century where our civilization is headed. Uh, particularly those of us who live in advanced quote unquote advanced industrial civilizations. Before we dive into all that, uh, just tell listeners a little bit about your backgrounds and your work in general? Well, um, I guess my background as it's relevant to this, um, this is the first publishing um, endeavor that I've really gone into. Um, I did some things in college that were just, you know, they were college little small projects. Um, but um, this is uh, kind of my my entry into the publishing world. Um, but I've been doing it for two years now, um, and I'm pretty happy with where I've, uh, where I've gotten with it. Um, I've also done a lot of stuff with typography and, and book design with that same, you know, college publishing thing and, uh, some font stuff that I did earlier on in life. So that, that's like the aesthetic end of it. Um, and, um, so the work that, uh, that I'm doing here with new maps is, uh, I'm just publishing this, um, quarterly magazine. Um, and I, a lot of, um, people when they hear that I'm publishing a magazine, um, at least over here, um, they, they expect that it's a, what they call a zine, um, and they expect that it's, you know, like photocopied eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper, 
um, you know, with real, a lot of that, a lot of that Xerox noise in there and, uh, some, you know, poorly put together, you know, uh, printouts from the computer, but it's, uh, it's, it's properly printed. It's, uh, it's bound, um, like a real book and it's about a hundred and hundred and some pages long usually. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, it's got, um, usually five to seven stories in each issue, uh, from authors all over the world. Um, a lot of the time they come from here in the States, but, uh, I've gotten, Actually, quite a number of authors from the UK, um, you know, and all over the Commonwealth, and um, occasionally from even some other places too. Um, I've got a, a fairly uh, frequent contributor from France, um, and uh, I guess I won't go into too much of what deindustrial fiction is because I guess that's going to be the uh, the topic of the whole the whole hour, um, or at least some of it. So I'll leave that for a little bit from now. Well, we, what we can just briefly say as we start deindustrial fiction, and it's just a little quote from your website, you know, as as referred to in new maps, and generally I think uh, simply means fiction set during um, or after the long decline of industrial civilization. And uh, there's many ways we can think of such a decline, but for most of us, it, it's it, it's physical aspects. The psychological dimension, I think, in many ways, is even bigger and, and is actually the key to um our future whatever that look, looks like or whatever our futures are because you know there doesn't necessarily have to be one monolithic future uh for our species you know unlike the 21st century or the trends of the 21st century tried to tell us i previously interviewed joel Karras, and he was a publisher of into the ruins which was um a similar type of periodical now i know that you had some contact with him get into the ruins is no longer published I mean, from from a reader's point of view, I see it really as a continuation. Yes, there are differences, but from the point of view of like, this is something that I want to read. It is a continuation. So, were were you a reader of Into the Ruins prior to uh, starting new maps? What did you see it as like, you know, taking over a baton, or was it not really like that at all? Uh, it was, and I was. Um, I was a subscriber to Into the Ruins from the first issue, which was actually kind of a departure for me. I had never really subscribed to a, a magazine regularly before, but as soon as I saw the announcement, I was like, oh, yes, I want that. I want um, fiction imaginations of the future that we could be headed into. Um, it just seemed really important to me. Um, and uh, he put an announcement in his second-to-last issue, so it would have been number 15 out of 16 that he did, that he was stepping down. He wanted to pursue some other things. Um, and he said that uh, he saw a magazine of deindustrial fiction as still a, a totally um, viable option for someone to pursue. Um, and he was happy to help with uh, the transition uh, if someone else wanted to start up a magazine, whether it might be under the under the end of the ruins name or a new name. Um, we eventually decided that it made more sense for it to be under a new name, but uh, he uh, he helped a lot with getting it all uh, set up and um, uh, telling me the systems that he had figured out for how to get it published. Um, so it was, it was very much a continuation fairly directly. Um, we worked pretty closely together towards the beginning. Now, you may or may not I wish to share with listeners uh, your age, but it, it has some relevance to this question, which is how and when, and this may have been a, a moment or it may have been more of a process, did you personally become interested and or concerned about the direction of travel of the society that you're living in? You know, one which is so many, so similar in so many ways to, to, to my own here in the UK. 
And what was the trajectory then? You know, how long ago was that? And what was the trajectory that brought you to where you are now? Which is addressing some of the concerns through storytelling, which has always been a very important uh, human trait. Um, well, I'm 33, and uh, I've thought about what it was that got me down this whole this whole road before, and I don't know that I can really pinpoint any particular uh, genesis to that, um, but it just does seem to me like when I was a kid, um, it, I think it started out in nature. Um, I was always... Uh, I always like to be outside and um and I felt like there was more wholeness, wholesomeness to life out there um than there was in the society that you know that I whose rules I was um expected to learn and to live with. Um I I just I guess I just never fit in. I always um I think there's probably a lot of people who feel like it, but um I was at least one of them who feel like the um the the proverbial alien anthropologist just kind of looking at human society or in our case uh, the specific industrial society that we live in from from without um and not really feeling like um i understood why we were doing the things that we were doing um and maybe it was because i was outside a lot and just kind of exploring um the the way that the world works when it's not um in the, that kind of shunted into that kind of a system. Um, but I don't know. Um, I don't know if that's where it came from or if it's just one of those things that you, you're born with. Um, but um, that was the general. And then the specific came, um, you know, I, I, I came to um, the, the most um, immediate jumping off point for where I got to, publishing new maps from was uh the writer john michael greer who i think um well joel karras certainly would have mentioned him i don't know if he's been mentioned much on your podcast before or even interviewed um but he's written a lot about um the future of industrial civilization um and uh what we can expect in the coming well, he's actually written on a about a lot of different timescales. He has a fairly famous piece called The Next 10 Billion Years where he looks at um, possible futures that we could have coming up um, from on on the timescale of 10, 100, 1,000, 10,000, all the way up to 10 billion years. Um, and that kind of stuff was really a, a mind expander for me. I got to that, um, I don't know, if it's terribly important how I got to it, uh, but I got to it from a, a, a writer named Rand Prier, um, who had written a piece earlier on called How to Drop Out, um, which was about how to not live in industrial society and uh, uh, how to go back to the land. And he ended up um, kind of going back to the land and then kind of also becoming a, a stoner and video gamer. Um, and I, I don't remember how I found him, but uh, it was uh, through... I think it it started out as um as like the kind of anti-civ primitivist uh kind of philosophy that I was really interested in um and then I somehow managed to find my way to figuring out uh, to finding writers who were talking about how it's not so necessary to try to destroy civilization because it's it's almost as if it's got its own destruction in its in its DNA, in its self-contradictory natures. 
Yeah, was it was it, what was the uh, the Unabomber called? Was it Ted Kaczynski? I can't remember exactly how to pronounce his surname, but you know the guy I'm talking about. Who, yeah, I think he pronounced it Kaczynski. Yeah, and he and he advocated people just have to look up Unabomber. In his day, he was mm-hmm. notorious for a hermit-like existence, and uh, you know, uh, mailing explosives and you know uh, devices basically to certain institutions. And he advocated, you know, for the assault on the edifices of industrial civilization. But as you say, that that agenda, which was kind of of its time, you know, it came from that after the the death of the summer of love. You know, a lot of dimensions of our society took a very dark turn. But uh, it's really, as you say, got its own built-in shelf life. And, you know, no matter how long we can spin it out, and certainly I think it has been spun out a lot longer than many people anticipated, Kaczynski included, no doubt. And John Michael Greer has pointed this out. It may go on, it could be another two or three hundred years of something looking very similar to what we have now in many ways. Then again, there may not, but that's the whole point, is it's it's uncertain, and it's increasingly uncertain, I think. One thing I would say, you mentioned being outside a lot, there's... There's a generational aspect to this, I think, and uh, I'm considerably older than you, but equally you're not a kid anymore, you know, so you be if you have any family or not, you're certainly old enough to have a young family. So you're, you're kind of somewhere in the middle of all this, as I see it, and there's been increasing trends. We saw this not so much in, immediately post-World War II, not at all, but certainly towards the end of the 20th century and certainly into the early 21st, this increasing or I should say decreasing exposure to uh, the, the outdoors and to nature for whatever the generation of the day was. And I know it's a well-worn cliche now, but m- many young people are very detached from even the most basic natural systems on which they depend. Typically, for example, where their food comes from, it's not unusual for kids who eat at McDonald's to think that hamburgers come from a hamburger factory and fries come from a fry factory, which they do. But... If you then explain that, well, that burger patty comes from a cow ground up and those fries come from, well, at some point, something looking resembling a potato that's in <laughs> powdered and reconstituted, you know, and they'd be like in complete bafflement. You know, literally, I, I do wonder sometimes, I worked in an organic farm for a year and encountered, this is when I was in my early 40s, and it was just produce, so no animals, and there was a lot of much younger people that would come through as seasonal workers and the number of them who couldn't identify, I'm not talking about exotic produce here, but just basic, you know, grocery store stuff like, you know, broccoli or peppers or, you know, whatever it happened to be. And they just thought, what is this? They'd never seen it before. They may or may not have eaten it. But so, yeah, there's there's a, a detachment from the natural systems, which no matter how processed food becomes or how manufactured our lives become, those systems still lie at the root of it. And then there's the other aspect of this, which is exposure to nature. And I think this is what you were speaking to, how that makes you feel, how that alters your consciousness, you know, your mind and how you see the world when you see it at work, you know, without, well, certainly without visible human interference. Yeah, for sure. Um, And I guess, yeah, there's another aspect of the generational thing is, well, I guess, it's probably part and parcel of it is, um, you know, how we've been, uh, as the generations have gone on, um, how we've been kind of pushed more and more into interacting 
uh, with the with the artificial world of you know electronics and symbols and everything instead of nature. It's it's sort of like you instead of nature there has to be something to replace it because there's there's hours in the day that you got to do something with and so you know a lot of the kids my age were were playing a lot of video games and you know for whatever reason i was immune to the lure of those i uh, at first it was just because i didn't have one and then it somehow somehow it became a point of pride for me that i had never played a video game i still have i've played like maybe two um, sessions of video games and uh, I don't think that's that much to brag about but it is kind of people sometimes goggle when I say that. Well I first encountered a home computer that is to say something it was affordable albeit would have to be for a middle class or upper middle class or rich family back in the early 80s and some listeners around the world of a certain you know age may recall uh, a line of computers, uh, BBC A, BBC B, um, here in the UK. And it was a BBC B that our school, which was relatively affluent, acquired eight or nine of these things. And we had a little IET lab. And I took to these things immediately. I couldn't wait to get hands on them. And as soon as I could get enough money together, I bought a Commodore 64. Called 64, because wait for it, it had 64K of uh oh yeah <laughs> which you could now get in a key ring probably a lot more than that you could get however many gigabytes in a key ring but at 64k of memory and i took to programming that thing at home and i had some great games you could get for it as well but i was interested in doing things from scratch so by the time i came to my last year of what you guys would call high school and did my it exam um we called it computer studies back then but it i got the best score in the whole of the north of Ireland for at that level, you know, the, the highest oh, wow. mark. Now, but for some reason at that point, I, I don't know what came over me, but I took a couple of years out of school before doing anything else, and I completely dropped all of that. I, I think I could see where it was going, and I could so easily have become a computer programmer. I, you know, it would have, been, would have been the easiest. It could have been a lot, much more lucrative thing for me to have done than I did do, but... Yes, I just, I, I don't know, I had this uneasy feeling about it. Not maybe for me personally, but just the general trend. And look, here we are talking across the internet via this free software. And even though you're publishing hard copy, you're still making use of information technology. I'm sure your printers are. My entire media presence now functions in uh, well, hardly any, ever in print. So we're not denying all the sort of cornucopia of wonders that technology, including information technology, has brought us. It's just that our relationship with it, I think, has become unbalanced. And mm-hmm. we've failed to... Um, I think that our our own human consciousness, our, our, our level of consciousness, has been advances in that. The evolution of that has been outstripped by the pace of technological advancement, and that's left... Many of us reeling, just not quite knowing how to react or how to live in this world. It's left others mesmerized and entranced with the promise that technology can can solve any problem and and fulfill any promise. Mm-hmm. And I think that's our that's our predicament. Yeah, and there's a book that I really need to get to reading. I I just um, finally looked it up the other day, but I don't I haven't read it yet. Called Future Shock, and I think that's a fairly foundational text about that. But I um, I I can't say much more because um, uh, I haven't actually read it yet. That was one of the things that brought me 
into all of this that when I started thinking about the trajectory of our civilization, probably like in the mid 80s, just through stumbling upon a couple of books and Alvin Toffler's Future Shock that you're referring to, published in the 70s, but I didn't get to it until about 84, 85, really got me thinking. And then there were other books like uh, Roberto Vaca's New Dark Age. And he, he predicts a lot of things mm. incorrectly, but it still is, was certainly food for thought at that time. And a lot of these texts came out in the late 60s and into the 70s. And there was a good reason for that because you had the oil shock in the early 70s, you know. Um, mm -hmm. Once again, John Michael Greer, who, by the way, has been my guest multiple times. I've lost count of the number of times he's been on the show. He, he, okay, he, I thought he, I remembered that. Yeah, now he pointed out, of course, there was this window of opportunity as he saw it for appropriate technology and rebalancing our reliance on, you know, fossil fuels, et cetera, et cetera. But that was uh, lots of moves in that direction were made in the 70s. But then there was a real change as the Carter administration, just to use the U.S. as an example, was uh, overtaken by the Reagan administration. It was morning in America. And suddenly it was boom mm -hmm. time and consumption time again. And you only have to look, even if you didn't live through it, you only have to look at the culture of the 80s to see the conspicuous consumption and the, the mindless optimism and everything that came with that. Yeah. You go from the crunchy granola era of the hippies and then, and then you've got like the, they called it the me generation or the me decade. That's. Yep, it's exactly what it is, and I guess it's just sort of the Reagan, the Reagan Thatcher consensus that they had that that decade. Well, the the milieu that you're operating in now, uh, with new maps, of course, there's been a long history of of what's effectively deindustrial fiction. You point this out uh, on a piece on your website, going right back to uh, the Machine Stops by E.M. Forster, and earlier than that actually, but that's a famous example, quite a short story, and mm -hmm. it was not only the books I mentioned like, you know, Future Shock, but it was a lot of dystopian fiction, again, published predominantly in the 1970s, which I was picking up in the 1980s. Again, that made me think. And it, as I mentioned earlier about us humans being able to think about our dilemmas, our problems, um, our potential through the medium of fiction, it sort of allows us just a little bit of a remove from reality, I think, in some ways. Um, so, yeah, what could be called deindustrial fiction or whether you just want to call it dystopian because you know a, a deindustrial future doesn't have to be dystopian per se a lot of people think that's the default it doesn't have to be but whatever label you want to use you know there's been a long history of of writers and thinkers going hang on a minute you know should we be doing this or should we be doing that or you know wh where are we headed you know mm -hmm. and uh, and writers uh i guess I, I tend to draw a distinction between dystopia and deindustrial uh, fairly uh, consistently, but I think it's it's kind of in how you look at it because I think there's a lot of people who uh, are really all about the um, you know the technological future and um, you know all the techno fixes for everything that you know the the uh, the people you were mentioning who are just kind of in love with the idea that technology can solve everything and that we're on this, you know, this grand march of progress um, that's just going to, it's going to culminate in Star Trek, basically. And people like that, I think, would view anything that's under the de-industrial de fiction banner as as tantamount to a dystopia because it it means that we didn't get that star trek future it means that we you know we're not colonizing mars and going out and founding you know the 
the the Federation um uh, I don't know the yeah the Star Trek uh, future um but I you know I think it's it's very different I mean dystopia I I think of you know 1984 or like uh, uh, Brave New World where it's this everything is completely and totally controlled by um the the government or some awful power or uh, or for set for example maybe it's like the road um by uh, cormac mccarthy where you've got um a, a completely well i guess he doesn't really specify the nature of his apocalypse but the the entire world is um dead um there's a besides the road you've got a lot of people who've written about futures where uh, all life is seized because of some hu- some folly of humanity or other you know dystopias basically are like the world has gotten worse than it's ever been or um it's gotten as bad as it can possibly get and you know there's there's something to be seen there's something to be gotten from that um in extrapolating trends but um Ursula K. Le Guin had something in uh, her foreword to the left hand of darkness where she says that um, if you where a lot of she says that a lot of sci-fi is um, the result of extrapolating something out to basically it's uh, it's reductio ad absurdum and if you if you take anything to its extreme it's basically cancer Um, and she says that what's what she considers to be more interesting sci-fi is um, is thought experiments so like what if this were different um and i think deindustrial partakes more of that although i think it's uh, yeah i guess it's the thought experiment of what not so much what if this were different but more like what will this be like um down the paths that we're currently headed down without without needing to go to the extreme of exaggerating at all to to its logical extremes um because there's plenty of interesting there's plenty of interesting psychological dimension to be found just in um where we're headed without all of that exaggeration there's i mean we're going into territory it's been it's been uh explored before in the history of humanity but it's really a special um it's really a special case kind of that we're heading into the kind of future that we're going to get with the lower energy um, and um, the, you know, less technology that we'll be able to sustain coming from such a high technology state. um, There's going to be a lot of adjustment and it's going to be, you know, it's going to take many generations for people to come to terms with the world that we're, that we're going into. um, And it's going to take, probably centuries of cultural adjustment um, and cultural reinvention, just as it's taken, I mean, we still haven't caught up in our culture with um, with the technological changes that have been wrought already. And that's kind of why we see so much dysfunction. If I suppose if it were possible to have um, the kind of technology that we have um, right now sustained for thousands of years, we probably would have a culture that would catch up with that um, and would have sort of functioning norms around how to deal with the kinds of technologies that are around it. And I think there's probably some some books that I could come up with uh, to name where that has um, arisen. But, you know, as it is, I don't think there is a possibility of, um, of that being sustained. And certainly it's been 
uh, a century and two or three centuries really of very fast change but the most uh, the fastest in the last you know century and a half since you since you get the uh, invention of uh, the ste well not the um, uh, the railroad and then uh, the elect electricity um, and you know then information technology um, the 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 psychological makeup of the world has been changing very fast. Well, we live in a very sort of either-or culture, don't we? A black and white. We see that in the, the bitter, vitriolic nature of public debate these days on any subject. It's a war of mm -hmm. words, if not a physical war. People attacking each other in lieu of actually discussing anything. As far as the future goes, um, and as for science fiction fans, two of the main types that... There are grey areas here, but two of the main types that I read a lot of in my teenage years were the aforementioned... Uh, dystopian one societal collapse you know whether it was a a high-tech dystopia or whether it was uh, you know some kind of societal collapse dystopia or on the other hand is it was space operas and uh, what they call hard sci-fi which involved you know interstellar travel and yeah, there could be conflict and strife and all of that but it was against a backdrop of extremely high-tech sometimes time travel teleporting all that sort of stuff and uh, those were two, that was a clear division between these two things, and they were both very popular in their own right. But we we are afflicted by this sort of thinking, whether it is in popular culture or whether it's in or just our general societal culture in, in terms of thinking about the future. But you only have to look at the past, whether you want to go back 100 years, 500 years, 1,000 years or beyond, to see how things could have taken a different turn. And lots of... Uh, writers of fiction have used these uh, thought experiments, as you mentioned, as a device for story creation. So, for example, classic one would be the Roman Empire at its height. If that hadn't imploded on itself and collapsed, where might that have taken, you know, Western civilization? Who can say? But you could make a great film or a novel out of it, speculating. There's the classic, in the modern era, the classic fatherland, uh, man in the high castle. You know, the idea that mm -hmm. the, the Nazis won the Second World War. Well, th how could things have been different if they had? That's not without the bounds of possibility. You know, what happened to Rome happened. What happened to the Third Reich happened, but it didn't have to be like that per se. You know, something else could have happened. So it's worth bearing that in mind when we assure ourselves so confidently that um, only the future that we want or that we're told that we want, you know, only that is possible. Yeah. Um, and I think this is what you were talking about with the dystopias and the utopias. Uh, it bears directly on um, or it's it's directly related to um, the, the foundations of, you know, deindustrial fiction at named deindustrial fiction john michael greer coined that term i think back in about 2008 um he, he and i both tried to figure out exactly which essay it was that originally he wrote it in we we couldn't figure it out but it was about 2008 and he was talking about um he mentions specifically the dystopias and the utopias and how how there's they're both these extremes and um deindustrial fiction uh is his name for um, fiction that treads kind of a middle ground between those where it's, um, it's not, it's not extrapolations. It's, it's those thought experiments. What if this history had played out differently? Or, um, 
indie industrial fiction. It's it's not usually as much tweaking with what with um what have what would happen if things had been different in the past, but more like tweaking with um what will happen if such and such a historical uh, sort of contingency plays out in in such a way. And I've it's interesting in the stories that I've had um and that were into into the ruins as well, um there's been a lot of really interesting um possible futures and many of them uh contradict each other pretty severely because it it is like history does play out that way it's a very uh it's very susceptible to being changed in in big ways by things that just kind of come out of nowhere um i think um yeah like greer has talked about before like what would be different if um if say Adolf Hitler had never been born. You, you know, Germany probably would have gone down something like its its road that it did in World War II, but it probably wouldn't have uh, turned into such a such a horrendous um, outcome as it did. It would have been something you know completely different that we can't predict. Um, and it's just like that one person, um, his his existence happened to change the course of of history in such a big way. So. You know, it's, there's, there's a, I, I don't know if I can avoid quoting it. Yogi Berra, the baseball player, said it's hard to, it's hard to make predictions, especially about the future. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, I think that's kind of where a lot of the glory of deindustrial fiction comes from is that there's so many different things that could happen, um, as we go down this downslope of energy, energy descent. Um, and each one of those is kind of a, uh, a forking path where, you know, if it happens the one way, you could end up with end up with this completely different future than if it goes the other way. So I've had very like totalitarian futures show up in the magazine, and I've had very like um, almost libertarian futures show up. And you know, sometimes you'll have the two right next to each other geographically in in some particular future, um, and. You know, that's what we see in the, in, in real history is we see things playing out in very different ways. Um, it just, you know, like in different time periods and in different geographical places. Um, so why should it be any different in the futures that are actually coming? It's not going to be one monolithic future. Like you say, it's going to be a lot of, um, a lot of different futures and they're all, it's not that even that they're all going to play out, um, one after another they're going to play out simultaneously um it's it's um it's related to um well i guess this is kind of a different uh a slightly different tangent but um the way of dissensus um where um if you want to find out what are the what the best way is to go into the future um what the best kind of if you want to if you want to have um the best approach to the future the 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 way to find it is not to um, set out all of your uh, uh, your logical preconditions and try to figure it out, you know, a priori of all the events that'll happen, because history is going to make a mockery of that uh, approach. You're, it's there's always going to be some contingency that will pop up and say that the and and make it so that the future that you planned, you know, it just seems laughable in retrospect. The plans don't work out. Um, 
the the way to do it is to just have as many different people doing as many different approaches to the future as as you can and then by sheer numbers one of them will come up with a really good approach or in in uh in the case of well it, as it will actually happen you know you'll have a lot of different visions that will um that will turn out to get magnified and come sort of the way of life in such and such a region and then the way of life in its neighboring region. Um, it's it's going to be a lot of different ways and they're all going to come out of these individual um, small beginnings. Yeah, when people say sort of you know, talk about planning their lives, I, I say, oh, good luck with that, really. You know, but like, mm-hmm. <laughs> don't get too attached to it. But you, you see what you're describing, you know, the opposite of dissensus, you know, the consensus in in these big monolithic, ideological, you know, political and social schemes where it's all or nothing and, and it only works if everyone's brought on board. You see, that's very religious, actually, um, because... Mm-hmm. The problem with uh, seeing things in a way that can that functions as religious means that anyone outside of your system is kind of evidence that you don't have you can can live without your system. Whereas a lot of, um, as I say, these grand schemes, particularly of the totalitarian uh, variety, uh, they demand this absolute um, loyalty and absolute obedience. Anyone just pitching a tent outside of their iron prison is then seen as evidence it doesn't have to be that way so that that's why it functions as religious but then in 1984 which you mentioned you, you see for me anyway when i watched it despite the arc of the narrative nonetheless because I, I, I always think ten, uh, when i read a story like that or watch a story like that i tend to think about oh, what came before what led up to this and how did things pan out after the credits rolled, if you see what I mean, or after the last page was turned. And in 1984, mm-hmm. I, I just see a system uh, imploding. That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com. Legalizefreedom.com. <laughs>